Well, I missed you all. I've been gone two weeks, and you are still with me every waking moment. So, you know, it's lovely to get away, but it's always fabulous to be back. But I'll admit, I wasn't sure I wanted to go. Where I went um, was... Unitarian Universalists gather every year at something called General Assembly. So we went to New Orleans. Wild, wonderful place. Got rain. Yeah, there's a little bit of rain. Can hurricane, uh, uh, Tropical Storm Cindy. But we were in one of those huge man-made, um, sealed, air-conditioned, there's a world out there kind of place. You have to step outside to be reminded that there are other realities. And before General Assembly, there's something called Ministry Days, where the ministers gather and talk about you all. (laughs) Talk about ourselves. And I was very hesitant to go, because I'd been online and paid attention, this won't surprise you, that ministers may not always behave as we wish. Um, But there had been, and I've mentioned this before, uh, there was an amazing series of conversations about what's going on in our world, what's happening politically, and what's happening in our association. And I won't go into all those details other than to say some of it took my breath away in its um, brutality. It was dark and... um, the essay about call-out culture spoke loudly to me uh, in what we were doing before we gathered. So that very first cocktail party, lovely event where you go, and you may think I'm an extrovert, but actually I'm introvert, so the notion of being in a setting with all sorts of ministers, many who I don't know, and now I've seen them online and know what may be in their hearts... I stood at the doorway and thought, I could leave now, no one would notice. (laughs) There's the the buffet, I'll just go over there, I don't have to. Um, Because prophecy was our monthly theme, I'd been reading about prophecy and I thought, okay, okay. I'm going to go to ministry days and general assembly, and I'm going to be open-hearted and try to hear whether there are prophets there. I've heard a lot of false prophecy on the Internet, but I'm hoping that there will be very real prophets there. So we have to back up and talk about, well, what the heck is a prophet? And what would be a modern-day prophet? And I must have been thinking so loud and hard about this that who shows up today but my Hebrew Bible teacher who taught me about prophets. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Susanna Southard is a professor at Phillips, and uh, I'll call her out. Um, So whatever we want to call the first set of books in the Bible, 
whether we want to call it the First Testament or the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. depends on whose, um, whose tribe and religion you are with and how you view those particular set of books. But that's where um, the notion of prophet that, it, that we are familiar with comes from. And there is a formula for all the prophets. There are major prophets. You, of course, know of Moses. And then there are minor prophets or writing prophets, even though it was all oral. But there is a commonality to their experiences. And I can step aside because none of the prophets are trained priestly. What makes a prophet someone is who has special knowledge and a relationship to God. And God has spoken to them in a certain way and said, you must bring my word to, and each prophet is set in a particular location and political structure. So what the prophet has to say is about what is happening in the here and now, right now. And so we have to read those books and those prophets in that way. So the prophet is someone who has special insight and You might call it a prophet is someone who then reframes. We all may agree on what's happening in our world, and the prophet says, yes, but think about it this way. And the authority I have for saying that is I have this special relationship and information from God. I've been called. And so there there are also all sorts of drama about I've been called, but oh, don't make me do this and say this because the prophet is the one who steps out and is the one who is, well, we'll use the word crucified for speaking whatever truth needs to be said in that moment. Prophet, Greek, means to speak. But I was thinking, okay, so these sacred texts, ancient sacred texts, have recorded who those prophets were, but weren't there some women who probably knew what was going on and had things to say? And my experience as a parent is, weren't there some children who saw so clear-eyed what was going on they could say what was happening? And some of the prophets came from halls of power, and some of the prophets were um, lowly people with lowly jobs who you would never have expected to be able to see so clearly. So I thought, okay, so what would a modern-day prophet look like now that I'm headed to General Assembly and Ministry Days and have watched stuff online? Well, for a group of people who have um, a wide understanding of God and not God, many of us might say, okay, the notion that you have some red phone hotline to God does not make any sense to us. But perhaps what makes sense is an understanding that this person has special knowledge, special understanding because of experiences, um, So I would maintain that a modern-day prophet might hear the voice of God, but more often than not might be someone who is deeply attuned to the world and to their own experiences. 
So still special knowledge, but a, a special knowledge that we would name slightly differently. And that it probably is not just a man, but any age, any gender, anyone along the gender spectrum. You know how often we start a conversation or start an email by stating our credentials because I want you to hear my argument and I want you to value what I'm about to say. Well, that's really all the prophets do, in a sense. They say, here are my credentials. I heard this voice. I know what I'm supposed to say to you, and I'm going to say it. And doesn't that happen all the time as a parent? I see the train wreck you're heading into. I can't stop it, but I just want you to know. And, and it's one of the, if you, we know it falls on deaf ears, which prophets experience all the time. Uh, sure, you can stay out till 3 in the morning, but trust me, not a lot good happens between 11 and 3. Good luck. <laughs> good luck to you. My boundary as a parent is here. So I don't think prophecy is such um, a weird notion of some future casting. I think we think of prophets as uh, fortune tellers, or I don't think that's the case at all, but it's that moment when you so clearly see something and know this information would help. And I know from my 12-step training that you may speak, but it's not our job to control whether the person hears you or acts on it. Darn it. <laughs> so I went to General Assembly and Ministry Days looking for those prophets. And I, I heard them. And I, I want to mention two in particular. One was um, a woman who spoke at Ministry Days. It's interesting, the two prophets I heard most loudly that were publicly speaking and invited to speak are both African-American attorneys. Um, so the woman who spoke at Ministry Days, and now I'm going to forget her name, um, is Colette Pinchon Battle. And she's the executive director of U.S. Human Rights Network. She'd been living in New Orleans for decades and what she did, in a nutshell, is connect all of these dots, which is exactly what a prophet does. Look over here at the systems that are oppressive and racist. Look over here at the economic systems that are based on extraction of our resources, extraction of human beings in the form of the prison system and made the connection between our religions that are based on some sort of extractive um, system. Extractive meaning we're going to take it up and use it up. How much of our lives are about using things up? And how different that changes your take on the world when that's, you're trying to be mindful to not extract a promise, extract oil that causes earthquakes. I mean, she made all those kind of connections. And the second was Brian Stevenson. I know many of you here have read his book, Just Mercy. 
He's uh, an attorney in Alabama who um, first began working with people on death row. He really is the force behind our reconsidering, forcing the legal system to reconsider whether those on death row had been fairly tried with proper evidence. And ultimately, he realized what he had stepped into was a system that was treating an extraordinary number of young teens, almost all African-American or people of color, as adults. And so he was, he was working with men on death row in their 30s, 40s, and 50s who'd been there since they were teens and being held accountable for all those stupid things that a parent no doubt said, don't do that. Or perhaps the parent wasn't there. Doesn't matter. What matters is that we, in, in a weird, extractive kind of economy, feel like we should be treating these teens as adults. I don't know about you, but when I think about who I was as a teenager, um, I'm grateful to be here today. Um, so Brian is with the Equal Justice Initiative. And he's given his talk. Unfortunately, they didn't record it. I hope we do something. Uh, and I think it had to do with copyright issues. Um, because he is out on the internet. And his TED Talk is one of the top TED Talks. Because he is so powerful. And he's clearly given it before because he's got, he's got the points down and it all weaves together and he's telling personal stories. It's beautifully done and you can find versions of it or you can watch the TED Talk. But the point that hasn't left me from, I listened to his book while I was going down, while I was driving down to New Orleans, um, is he talked about the value of proximity because what he has done is entered all of those prisons and sat face to face with not just the prisoners, but the guards and the families, gone to the families' houses. In fact, his book and his talk um, are all filled with his telling a story and something will happen, someone will say something that will just cause him to stop. And the part I love is he says, I didn't know what to say next. Which is not what a prophet often says. But I deeply value that he was caught unawares and willing to stop and think before he said whatever he said next. But this notion of proximity, he was talking about being an activist and he was talking about changing the world, but that we can't do it unless we are engaged immediately in the proximity of the problem. So back to call-out culture. My daughter reminds me it's, it's you're a clicktivist, someone who clicks, click activist. Or for those millennials who, who are trashed often, you're a slacktivist. Um, I don't think it's a millennial trade at all. I've engaged in it, but so there's this sensation of, I know what's going on. I have friends. I, I've read that article, and you click. And it's not the same as proximity. 
It's not the same as being face-to-face with the problem and hearing all the nuances and being able to connect all the dots, some of which are extractive, some of which are... And in fact, that community organizing work we do is an effort to be proximate, to be connected with each other. And it's the work we do within a church. So... The activism we do, the prophecy we listen to, isn't just out there. It's being very proximate with each other. Because we tend to think, oh yeah, that's that work out there. Well, no, the work starts right here, being proximate here. Really knowing each other's story, being willing to ask the next question. So I have thought about proximate. And I've thought about some of the systems we have here and how we do generosity and how we do our own social justice work and wondered, what if we look and ask, are we being proximate? We feed the homeless. Have we ever gone to count them? You know, there's a count every uh, Thursday night. I'd like to go. Are there ways that we could be sure that what we're doing is proximate enough that we could be real prophets in the sense of, we understand all of the dots. Proximity, proximity. I was so worried about General Assembly and Ministry Days that I checked something off my bucket list afterwards. I've been dying to go to a Buddhist retreat. And there wasn't a retreat exactly at that time, but lo and behold, there was a Buddhist monastery in Mississippi, just north of New Orleans, and it wasn't that much further if I went north and then west to come home. So I spent five days at Magnolia Grove, which is a Thich Nhat Hanh Buddhist, uh, Vietnamese Buddhist monk. He has monasteries all over the world. Um, What's interesting about Thich Nhat Hanh is he left Vietnam during the Vietnam War, was uh, forced out, came to the U.S., and met Martin Luther King. And so they had a couple of very profound conversations about beloved community. So there's a connection between the two men, and Thich Nhat Hanh still talks about beloved community. And these monasteries that he has started are intentional beloved communities. So even though prophecy means has speak in its root, I feel like online and in my life and turning on the radio that words, we are just swimming in words. And that there's also prophetic silence. And that's what I experienced there. They eat there from the five o'clock first bell through meditation, um, walking meditation, sitting meditation, walking meditation, and then breakfast. So for three hours, it's all done in silence. And so other things are allowed to speak to you. And it's deeply profound. So I started thinking about the silence the prophecy that I hear when I don't fill up every single moment of my day and I listen deeply, or I don't try to 
formulate what I'm going to say while you're talking because what I have to say matters and is so important and I can't wait. In fact, I'm going to probably interrupt you because I kind of get the gist of what you're saying. That by being silent and really listening, what, what I discovered was how much I use words as a way to connect with people and kind of jokey talk that doesn't really say much. So that's my wish that that we use the Unitarian Universalists use don't use prophecy as much as they use prophetic imper- imperative, meaning let's all get on the same page and take this action together. And I feel like we miss a step because taking action is good, but what prophets bring to us is a reframing of the world and engage our imagination that what feels like we only have one option, no, the prophet points out, you think you're going here, but try just this one step in this direction and you'll be amazed at what's here. And the same is true with silence. It allows your prophetic imagination to begin to engage and to see other possibilities. So that's my wish for you, that this week you pay attention to the prophets in your life and those who seem to be prophets but aren't, that you're willing to turn the radio off or the podcast or the computer and listen for the prophetic imagination that you have in that silence. May it be so.